Would you pray with me, please? Be with us this morning, God. Quiet our hearts. May our spirits be still, that we might hear from you. Amen. For we know only in part. That's what Paul reminds the Corinthians of in today's passage. For we know only in part. Now, given what's gone before in this letter, it's not hard to imagine the Corinthians hearing this and suddenly looking down at their feet, their fingers suddenly digging at their cuticles, their eyes desperate to avoid everyone else in the room. It's really not hard to imagine this. I mean, let us together picture them there. Each little faction within the church sitting at their own table in the fellowship hall. All of them having shown up here tonight to hear this latest letter from the Apostle Paul. He whom they hoped would vindicate their faction as the truly holy one. As the truly righteous one. Vindicate them as the true believers. You remember over at the table in the corner, we have the spiritualists, the ones in the church who pray fervently and who let it be known just how devoted they are to personal piety. And then over at the next table, we have the Corinthian intellectuals, the ones who know their Greek philosophy and their Latin rhetoric and who have a sophisticated explanation for every aspect of their faith. And then over at the next table, we have the humanitarians and the social activists, the ones committed to constantly doing good in the community and convinced that anyone else not doing the same is somehow lacking in commitment. And this, of course, is only to mention the three factions to whom Paul draws attention in this particular passage. This isn't even to mention the ones he's already addressed in this letter. You know, those who have split themselves into factions based over which leader they prefer. And those who've split themselves into factions over who eats meat sacrificed in pagan temples and who doesn't. And those who've split themselves into factions over sexual ethics. And those who've split themselves into factions over socioeconomic class and over who gets to take the Lord's Supper and when. So yeah, the fellowship hall at First Corinthian Church is full of partisan tables right now. And they showed up here tonight to hear what Paul has to say about their situation. Each group hopeful that Paul will be vindicating them and their righteousness, and their moral superiority, and their claim to being the true Christians. But man, has he just lowered the boom. 
Oh, he'd already taken many of these factions to task earlier in the letter, but now, well, now he's just been really on the nose. And so if I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, he just said. And at this point, as my friend Tom Long teaches, the spiritualists all leaned forward as if, all right, come on, come on. But if I have not love, he then continued, I am nothing. At which point the spiritualists had been suddenly deflated. Or if I understand all mysteries and have all knowledge, he'd then gone on. At which point all the intellectuals had leaned forward like, all right, come on, come on. But if I have not love, he'd then gone on. Then I'm nothing. And suddenly the intellectuals had been deflated. Or if I give away all of my possessions to the poor, Paul had then gone on. At which point all those Christian activists leaned forward and said, all right, come on, we knew it. But if I have not love, he'd gone on. Then I am nothing. And then he told them, love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or arrogant or boastful or rude. Love is not irritable or resentful. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. He'd written to them, then finishing by saying, love never fails. That's what Paul's letter had just said. And as their deacon chair read these words, there were suddenly crickets in that first Corinthian fellowship hall. And so it is in this atmosphere that they now hear Paul's letter say, for we all know only in part. Thus cue the cuticle digging and the floor watching. Humility. A call to humility. That's what's underneath this passage. That's what's underneath this whole letter. Paul's explanation of love, of what it is, all of that, a call to humility. Paul's metaphor of the body and of the vital role that each part plays in the functioning of the whole, all of that, a call to humility. 
Paul's reminder that laudable things like spiritual devotion or commitment to logic and reason and the intellect or activism and social engagement or moral rectitude and self-discipline, Paul's reminder that these things, while each laudable in their own ways, Paul's reminder that these mean nothing, at least nothing insofar as being done in the name of Jesus. Paul's reminder that these things all mean nothing if not done in love. All of that. One big extended call to humility. You spiritualists don't know everything. Paul is here reminding them. And you smarty pants professor types, you don't know everything. Paul is reminding them. And you social justice warriors, you don't know everything. Paul is reminding them. And you meat eaters and you vegetarians, and for all we know there may have even been some vegans there among them too, none of you, he's reminding them. None of you knows everything. I myself, he then concludes, I don't know everything. For we all, he then finishes by saying, we all know only in part. Yes, they'd come out that night to hear their own side vindicated. But they were now being reminded that in Christ Jesus, there are no sides. That as Paul writes, Christ cannot be divided. That either they have faith in the coming resurrection, hope in what his resurrection portends, namely their own coming resurrection in God's coming kingdom, and love for God and love for one another, for these three things, he explains, abide. And the greatest of these, he says, is love. An old church joke goes like this. A man was stranded on a deserted island for close to five years before finally an airplane spotted him and alerted the authorities. And when the authorities arrived to rescue him, they were amazed by the way he had set up the island to reflect his life back home. He had a shelter and a cantina. He had a place to relax and enjoy the view. He had a latrine, he had a place to bathe. It was remarkable how resourceful the man had been. And that structure just down the beach, they then asked him, what's that? Oh, that? He said, that's, that's my church. Well, then, so what's that? They then asked him, pointing to a structure just down the beach that looked just like this structure that was his church. To which he replied, oh, that's my old church. I had to leave it for a new one because I realized they weren't real Christians there. He was clearly a Baptist. <laughs> or a Corinthian. 
No, the joke works because the character doesn't have to be Baptist or Corinthian or Presbyterian or Methodist or Church of God or anything else for that matter. No, the joke works because the character is human. And the letter to the Corinthians resonates all these years later because it was a letter written to and about humans. To and about a group of people trying to live together in unity, constantly being distracted from their unity by other items, secondary but no less intense items, that threaten to tear them apart. Items that played on their senses of identity and worthiness and significance. And Paul in this letter is not trying to diminish these realities or these differences. No, what Paul is trying to remind them of in this letter is that despite these differences, Christ Jesus, as he writes elsewhere, has made us all one. Spiritualists and intellectuals and humanitarians and disciplinarians, conservatives and liberals and libertarians and apoliticals, traditionalists and progressives and even Baptists and Catholics, all of us, Paul writes, all of us are small parts in the greater whole. And each of us Paul writes, knows only in part. Which means we may just have something to learn from the person at the table over from us. Because we aren't whole, we aren't full, we aren't one as Christians, Paul reminds us in this letter. All by ourselves. It was a sobering moment when the Corinthians heard those words that night. I assure you of that. Just as if we all have ears to hear it, it ought to be sobering for us as Christians whenever we hear it afresh today. This reminder that each of us knows only in part. This reminder that each of us needs the other to be made whole in Christ. This reminder that each of us is not living up to our call as Christ followers unless we are evidencing love for those around us particularly those who are different from us and those who see the world differently than we do. Yes, 2,000 years later, these words ought to be a sobering reminder for us still today. All the leaves of the New Testament are rustling, C.S. Lewis writes, with the hope that one day, God willing, we shall get in. That one day God's kingdom shall come and God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we as Christians hope and in that we place our faith.
And come that day, as Paul writes, we will know fully. But until that day, here on this side of the veil, we know only in part. And so then the point of this sermon, we stymie our growth as Christians when we forget this. We stunt our Christian witness when we fail to live by this humility. We satirize the cause of Christ when we turn it into a partisan debate. We sacrifice Christ anew when we speak and act in his name, but evidence not love when we do it. Dear family, let us never forget, until Christ's kingdom comes, we know only in part. And thus the greatest thing we can do as Christians, and the only thing that in the final analysis will abide, is to love. To love. Faith, hope, and love, these shall abide. And the greatest of these is love. Amen. And as we prepare now to sing.